When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk. The tennis season is essentially over. And before everyone gets on Twitter and starts saying, oh no, we've got the Davis Cup, it is over, come on, all the singles stuff done, all the important stuff's done, just the Davis Cup final, and if there's anything we've learned about tennis this year, it's that no one cares about the team tournaments, or too many people care about the team tournaments, and that's why we're going to have seven of them next year. George, I suspect you haven't slept for about a week, because while I've been tied to the desk co-presenting drive time on Love Sport, you have been frolicking around the O2 arena. Uh, how was it, first of all? Yeah, it's good. Um, I don't think it was always the most memorable tournament in terms of matches during the week. There were a lot of straight setters. But by the weekend, we had a couple of brilliant matches. Uh, Zverev beating Federer and then going on to beat Djokovic. Uh, So lots of storylines, lots of interest. And there are a few quite interesting stories developing throughout the piece that we'll kind of tackle later on in the show. So I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, what's nice about the end of the season is people, I think, are a bit more candid with what they say. Because they, they don't have the opportunity to go, yeah, well, you know, it's been all right. I'm just building towards next week. It's like, there isn't next week now. So I think people tend to sort of say, well, I'm about to go on holiday. By the way, drops bombshell <laughs> here. This will, we hope, be remembered as the coming of age of Alexander Zverev. But we very much said that about Grigor Dimitrov last year <laughs> when he won the biggest title of his career at the ATP World Tour Finals. Was this a, a different set of performances from Zverev to, to those by Dimitrov last year? Well, obviously, he's had to go through better players than Dimitrov had to. Um, I mean, Dimitrov did win all his matches. Zverev didn't do that. But Zverev lost to Djokovic in the group stages when Djokovic looks kind of untouchable. So we'll maybe let him off that one. Um, But Dimitrov was meant to play Rafa in his group, I think. And then Rafa pulled out. Goffin took care of Federer in the semifinals. And then he beat Goffin again, who he'd already beat in the group stages. So Mm. in terms of a run to the titles, Zverev's taken out Chilich, taken out Isner you know they're not easy matches purely based on just the huge serves against him um beaten Federer really well that was a cracking performance and then was booed by the crowd and come back the next day and beaten Novak Djokovic let's start with the booing 
because I think that's the thing people have read most about, it's people we talked most about, and also it involves the fans. So I think fans like to talk about things where they're involved. Essentially, Zverev was booed after beating Federer, but not because he'd beaten Federer, although that is a booable offence in many people's book, but actually because he stopped a point early when a ball boy dropped a ball. Now, I thought the rule is that the point stops immediately when, when a ball boy drops a ball, no? Yeah, so I, I mean... There's no kind of doubting he was right to stop in many ways. Um, but I, the only uncertainty was whether the umpire was supposed to stop the point mm. rather than the player. But the umpire was obviously facing Zverev, about to hit the ball. Clearly in his eye line, this ball boy dropping it and r- letting it run away from him. Um, he stopped it. You know, I, I, I think it was the right decision, regardless of who's meant to stop it. The ball boy clearly had let it run. It was just a shame from Federer's perspective that he was kind of on top in that rally and then Zverev aces him when they replay the point. Mm. Um but there was no need to boo him. I mean, that was just ridiculous, really. Roger's reaction? He he was a bit like, well, was the umpire meant to stop it, blah, 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 that sort of thing. He was a bit unsure. He, he kind of said, well, the umpire could have just turned around to Zverev and said, well, tough luck, mate. I didn't see it. You're not meant to take the law into your own hands or whatever. Um, but he said, you know, Zverev was within his rights to do it. It was the right call. It probably affected him a little bit, but... There we go. I mean, I think if most tennis players had their way, we wouldn't have umpires and they would just sort it out between themselves. Mm. I mean, they're very good at taking the law into their own hands and just saying, no, 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 point stops, that ball's out, yeah, yeah, we'll replay it. No, no, no. There's a bloke in the chair for a reason. And we've seen the bloke in the chair be very busy this year and very controversial. So at least we've got the case of the umpire getting one right, I think. And then the crowd booing Zverev. I mean, there's a sort of pantomime element, especially when you're at an indoor stadium the O2 Arena and the event itself, I think, is different. It's not Wimbledon. You haven't got the aficionados there every year. The way they sell it, they sell it as rock and roll tennis a bit, you know, with the doubles rules being a bit different with the arena. So I think you sort of... It's very easy to be very belly aching about it. Oh, it's disgraceful. The crowd shouldn't <laughs> have booed their champion. They're terrible. No, for goodness sake. Like, If you're going to build up these rivalries and give them the pantomime element and try and sell them as sexy tennis, or you don't need to like tennis to be here because it's Zverev, the sexy young one against the legend. If you're going to sell that, you're going to get the pantomime reaction. So I don't really think it's it's right for everyone to be sitting down going, oh, well, the crowd are disgraceful. It's terrible. what you get me in non-tennis people. And then Annabelle Croft sort of patronisingly telling everyone <laughs> off with a wagging finger. I didn't like it one bit, George. <laughs> I didn't mind it. I mean, you know... People made a lot of it. Yeah, some did. I mean, from my perspective, we wrote on it quite quickly, but it was done by tomorrow. I didn't want it to continue being a really long narrative. Mm. Um I think had he come out the next day and been completely useless, you might have said, oh, was he rocked by it? But the fact he's turned up the next day, put it completely behind him and smashed Djokovic means it doesn't really matter. It's not going to taint the legacy of that win for him, I suppose, because he's gone on the next day and won a title. Was it a Djokovic smashing? Was it, was it, is that the right word? It was. The first eight games, as, as was the case in the group stage, actually, very tight, no breaks. Um, Djokovic looked in decent form there, not quite as locked in as he was earlier in the tournament. But Zverev, rather than being broken himself and then going on to lose that first set and not and only win one more game, he broke Djokovic and then assumed complete control. And Djokovic just looked completely rattled. Um, Zverev was going with him toe-to-toe from the back of the court. Uh, that serve's just been immense all week. You know. That first set, he lost four points on serve. Yeah, it's, which mean, is crazy stellar. against Djokovic. Uh, yeah, especially against the guy who we talk about as one of the greatest returners possibly of all time in very good nick to what extent 
I mean, was there any suggestion of tiredness? I saw a tweet of yours, George, saying that he there was a point at which Djokovic sort of ended up on his haunches, looking exhausted. Yeah. Now, I know tennis players play games, but yeah. this is the end of a long season. Do you think it was genuine exhaustion? I mean, look, he's had a cold that he's been talking about the last three or four weeks, that <laughs> particularly in Paris, he was struggling. Um, actually, in his group stage match against Zverev, he was complaining that the cold had come back a bit. Mm. So... I think it might have had a little bit of an impact, but realistically, I don't think you can blame it all on that. He was playing with the cold all week and looking pretty perfect. He just had a pretty rubbish day, to be honest. Yeah, well, we know what tennis players are like. When they lose, they have to find an excuse. They always exaggerate and they always go, well, by the way, you're forgetting that I've got a cold and I did my elbow earlier this year and, (laughs) you know, my hairdresser's been on holiday and and it's really been a problem. (laughs) There have been some weird... I remember Philip Kohlschreiber coming on to a press conference, it might have been last year at Wimbledon, and saying that he had he had had to change his socks twice during the match, <laughs> and he was like, "I was really, really bothering me. It was really problematic." They'll come up with anything, really. <laughs> How much is this a springboard for Zverev? Like I said, when I saw Dimitrov win that tournament last year, okay, it wasn't as you say, it was a not an impressive run to the final, and there was still a lot of bottling, but he had to show some spirit. There was, the crowd kept shouting in his serve, and Dimitrov's a bottling server at the best of times, and he really had to find a way through. It was a really vociferous, like, Goffan crowd. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is Dimitrov's going to win a major next year. It's all going to come together. <laughs> and, of course, it spectacularly didn't. Mm. So, and I know there was an injury problem as well, but do you think Zverev, this is a big moment for him, or are you assuming he's going to lose in the first round of the Australian and not win a clay court match? <laughs> um... <sighs> I think I'm going to go somewhere kind of in between. I, I think this will prove to be this will this will prove to be a big Welcome moment. Welcome to George's fence. Oh, well, I think if you look at the current landscape of tennis, I still don't think Zverev is going to say beat Djokovic to win all four majors next year. I still view Novak as the guy to beat. I still think Raf as the guy to beat on clay. Mm. I think Zverev will make improvements. I think he should realistically be expected to reach the quarters and beyond of every slam next year. He's good enough to do that. Um, there's no excuses there anymore. Um, what I would say is that when Djokovic won this title back in 2008, now I know he'd already won the Australian Open earlier that year, but he didn't go on to win another major pretty much for two or three years after that. So there is this kind of, in terms of the development of his career, we shouldn't panic too much if this doesn't immediately turn into majors galore. But what it does say is he's on a good career trajectory. That's what Djokovic was saying. He was kind of suggesting Zverev could surpass him, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, I, I I really feel he's got a great future. I've always thought he can win around five or six slams. I've probably stretched that towards eight now. Um <laughs> But I'm not saying they're going to come immediately. There's a but long time left in his career. What he's done is he's jumped the gun. He's already got the Grand Slam whisperer in his, in his, in his, on his bench in Ivan Lendl. Mm. I think that looks like a very shrewd appointment. Are you seeing any progression that looks Lendl-y? I mean, the, beating Federer and Djokovic back-to-back is Lendl-y. Mm. You know, Only f- three other players have done that in a semi-final and final um, throughout their careers i mean not every player who's won a title has the opportunity to beat federer and djokovic in terms of the draw but even mm. so that's that's a pretty remarkable achievement um rafa murray and Nalbandian, the other three um so 
Yeah, I, I, I think from that perspective, there was a mental edge. Zverev had said Lendl had told him to go out and be more aggressive against Djokovic. You could see that. There was a real contrast between that group stage match and the final. Mm. But he's also said, Zverev, look, the Lendl effect you'll see in the summer next year. So he's willing to accept it'll take a bit of time to find that kind of magic formula. And I think we should too. We shouldn't just expect him to turn up to Australia and win it. The guy's not been beyond the quarters of a slam before. Um, so, you know, I'm not expecting miracles immediately. I wonder if actually the slam format is the problem for Zverev. I wonder if the fact he has a day between matches is the problem. And actually, a little bit like the semi-final here in London, he, it's an advantage for him just to play every day, mm. not have too much time to think about it, not have days where he can... I, I, I know 48 hours between matches doesn't sound like long, but I imagine if you, for example, beat Federer in the semi-final of the Australian Open, then you have two days until the the final of the Australian Open. I imagine that feels like an absolute eternity. And if you're a young guy who hasn't necessarily got all the pieces together in your head, uh, that's just time for you to torture yourself and to go out on the practice court and find problems, try and fix problems, try and do too much. So I wonder if Lendl is the guy to, you know, someone who famously doesn't say very much, you know, doesn't give him much praise, just sort of says, let's just go out and practice. Let's just do it. And uh, I think that might be the answer. It's just someone who almost deadens everything, almost just says, stop thinking. Stop stop trying to fix problems that aren't there. Go out and play tennis. I, I often think with him, he looks like a guy who, when he thinks less, plays better. Yeah, I agree. I think, as well, he's a guy who believes he should be number one. He believes... He could be right now this second. And I think one of the most impressive things about him this week was he was just a little bit more relaxed, better sense of humour. You know, we've seen him before. He can be a bit of a brat, Zverev. And mm. I'm, I, I'm, I like that. Don't get me wrong. I like players to have uh, attitudes. I like them to be spiky. It's good for us. It's good for the game to have people who speak their mind and stuff. And Zverev's not afraid of doing that. Mm. And he still did that this week. But there was a, a fresh kind of relaxation, a bit of a, more of his sense of humour coming through. He looked, he felt like he belonged there a bit more rather than this kind of stubbornness. Yes, I am here because I am Alexander Zverev. I'm the greatest. He's like, well, yes, I am here. I've still got a long way to go, but I am going to be the greatest. And I think that's a nice transition we've seen from him. This week also saw, as anyone who's been on Twitter and seen a very emotional video featuring the Big Four will have seen, the end of Sky Sports' relationship with tennis as we know it. Now, I saw the first reply to that tweet is, if only Sky hadn't spent so much on the Premier League, they'd still be able to afford to do tennis. <laughs> do you think it's actually Sky taking a bit of a punt and going, well, the price is being driven up because a lot of people are trying to hawk it off, and with Roger retiring soon, and Rafa probably retiring soon, and Djokovic and Murray in their 30s, doesn't look like tennis might be as big as it was 10 years ago. Which which do you think it is? Bit of both, I think, yeah. uh, which you'll probably be surprised to hear. Um. Welcome to episode two of George's Fence. It's going to be four times today. So why is Sky dropping tennis, George? Fence sitter. Well, obviously, there's been a lot of money coming in from Amazon to win this contract. I, I think Sky probably would have kept it the same price. Um, I don't know, but you're, you're right. I mean... Is the future of tennis that grand? It's always been a bit uncertain. I, I happen to think it will be. I think there's a really nice group of young players coming through, being led by Zverev, who we've already spent a lot of time on today. I, I think there's a lot of exciting things coming up. But there is, of course, is it going to be as big as this period? Probably not. I mean, we've had three It's hard of the to greatest. imagine three of the greatest of all time turning up tomorrow. Yeah, 
I mean, it's, there will be a transition period. Zverev is starting to step up in terms of the character needed to be that star of tomorrow. And I think the other guys will continue to do that as well, What guys behind. On the one hand, going to Amazon isn't great in terms of, okay, it's not on a TV and stuff now. I think that's a serious problem for a lot of tennis fans. Mm. While that may be the future of tomorrow, there's a lot of tennis fans who are, you know, 50 above, 60 above, who, um, you know... It's got an Don't older generation, that technology you know, problem. that sort of technology. Also, my broadband's rubbish. Broadband, yeah. I mean, that's the, that is the main thing, I think. Um, are people streaming capabilities up to it? Mine's okay, so I've not really had too many problems with it. But Also, to be fair, I, I stream, obviously, US Open on Amazon, and the Silverlight player that they use is very good at sort of... Uh, it's not buffering, it's sort of choking the mm. quality. So instead of stopping and buffering, it just downgrade your quality when your bandwidth gets low mm. and then when it's up which is like netflix the reason netflix streams so so smoothly is the exact same reason so uh shout out to amazon brilliant brilliant well, uh, technology just amazing sponsor us but um, i'm hearing with amazon in general there's a few kind of hiccups in terms of their plans i think i don't mm. think they are that prepared to do it you know sky have got a lot of experience there were obviously a few cock-ups at the US Open where for example you couldn't watch i think Kyle Edmund and Heather Watson's match at the same time they didn't offer two separate courts for that because they didn't have enough feeds right um there's also talk that they might not do all the nine masters next year on site on the tournament which they kind of oh, I see. promised at the basically start. take a world feed and, and broadcast that exactly so you know i i think they've got a lot of ironing out to do and it might not be great immediately i think if this move was happening in 10 years time a, a fully streaming service i think that would be the right time but maybe right now it's a little bit difficult um to see if it will be perfect and still we've got the problem that there are other tv channels showing different events blah 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 but i'm quite happy it's at least the majority of the tour has gone to one place yeah that's i i do have a problem with it being hawked off it's going to happen with football a lot more that if you actually want to watch all the football you've got to have about eight different Mm. subscriptions and that that's dangerous i saw simon cambers tweeting the atp radio commentator saying, I think tennis will miss the likes of Marcus Buckland, Animal Croft, Greg Gazetsky. They did a great job with tennis in the UK. Yeah, they did, but they're not They're not dead. Like they're, they're, going, they're going to still be working in tennis. And I am sure that while Amazon have their own team, that if they think it's not working, they will be the first people they go to because of what tennis fans think of them, because of the hold they have, and because of their impact, surely. Yeah, I, I mean, can't imagine we've seen the last of Animal Croft. No, I think, I mean, Annabelle and Greg both work for Amazon during the US Open. I don't I don't know their long-term plans, but I imagine they're involved. Uh, I think Marcus Buckland isn't going to Amazon as far as I'm aware right now. Um, I think he's got a few other gigs with Sky. Mm. Um, so, yeah, obviously people are scared of change and stuff. Um, I think there's some talk of maybe Matt Smith actually coming to do a bit for Amazon next year. Interesting. Which be quite interesting. Um but we'll have to wait and see. These are all unconfirmed murmurings at the minute. But I think love a murmuring, George. It's going to be. Um... It's just below a rumor. <laughs> a rumor is fully fledged. The murmuring is what what turns into a rumor. I always think. Yeah. But you know, Amazon are going to need a bit of time to get it right. I think there'll be a lot of uh, over zoo, over drama next mm. year um, about the problems they're going to encounter as an inexperienced streaming service. But Amazon have got a lot of money. Hope they get it right. Oh, the one thing I was going to say that I wish they'd do, why don't they just launch a channel on Freeview Amazon on the Skybox? Mm. Why not? And just stick 
Stick use it as a prime them. video thing. Like Netflix have got a channel like that. Why don't they just do that? They've got uh, the Netflix money. Netflix got a channel like that. They do. It's, it's somewhere out in like seven hundred and something. Oh, okay, on the you Sky really thing. have to know the you number. You have to know it. But I mean, Amazon... a bit like Sky Sports Mix or uh, Eurosport have something. Quest. They occasionally throw things on there. Yeah, yeah. as well just stick it on there so they tackle that problem of streaming until everyone's kind of ready for it. Because I, I do think that's a real shame for the sport if it's not available to a lot of its uh, yeah. best Yeah, I wonder friends. if there's a technical reason behind that, which is that you find if you start going on to freeview channels, you're governed by different, Ofcom for example, mm. you're governed by different regulations, regulators. Now, I don't know actually whether streaming circumvents that. I wonder if that's, that's part of the reason behind it. It's going to be an interesting year for tennis in that sense because, actually, we, we're into a bit of a new era now. This is, the, this is the beginning. Most people watch tennis on TV. That's how most people consume tennis. So if we're changing the way it's being shown on TV, that's essentially like changing the game itself. George, my notes simply say Federer conflict of interests. It's exciting. Mm. It sounds, sounds pretty sexy. The, sort of talk me through this. Essentially, it seems to stem from something Julian Benito was saying. Yeah. That Federer has too many fingers in too many pies or too many pies and not enough fingers. <laughs> well, it, there's quite a lot of points that Benito's kind of attack ranging from favouritism in scheduling, um, his agent kind of chasing massive appearance fees. Um, <laughs> Which he's perfectly entitled to do. Yeah. Um I mean, there's all sorts of Labour Cup conflicts. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of things that Benito's kind of throw in Federer's way, trying of unveiling what goes on behind the scenes with him. Um, I mean, is he basically saying it's Roger Federer's world and we're all living in it and I don't like it? To a degree. I, th- I think, on the whole, most things you can kind of say about it, I, I agree with that point. I think Federer, if you look what he's done over 20 years, who he is, how how much he's kind of transcended the sport. He obviously deserves a lot of special treatment. I don't see the problem with tournament directors, as Craig Tiley's come out and said this week, saying, you know, this is Roger Federer. He's a once-in-a-generation player. TV broadcasters want him on primetime. Fans want him on the top courts. Fans want him to be able to watch him on TV at good times for them in the country that's playing. I don't really see that being such a problem. But Benito has... You know, pointed out some interesting relationships that are going on between Federer uh, and his agent that I, I do think raise some serious kind of ethical points. And the, the main point I'm going to make in an article about this is this is very new ground for tennis. Like this sort of relationship hasn't existed before where you've got an active player who's paying one of the most powerful tournament directors in the sport money um, to organise this tournament when he's meant to be helping organise other team tournaments. There's, there's all this kind of so murky hang on, waters. Just, let's just, just talking of murky waters, let's try and add some alkali and just sort of <laughs> clear them a little. So Roger Federer is paying Craig Tiley, who yeah. is... Tennis Australia chief. He runs the Australian Open. Yes. Um, so he's a, he, he organises one of the Grand Slams, but yeah. he also organises... The Labour Cup, obviously, through Roger. But he's also, as Tennis Australia's El Capitan, to my mind at least, he has a responsibility to the fans to be able to sort out this Davis Cup mess because Australian fans are very passionate about the Davis Cup. So he's got a relationship with the ITF. So he's supposed to be kind of on board with helping the Davis Cup. Now, how you can be on board with helping the Davis Cup when When you're running the ATP Cup as Tennis Australia and you're financially invested in the Labour Cup, which is which the Davis Cup is trying to find its way between in the calendar, how you can possibly not have a conflict of interest there, I'm not sure. Or how you can at least not 
I mean, how are you going to find time to do all that and, yeah. and try and deal with them fairly? I'm not saying that he's not dealing with them fairly as is, but it leaves him very open to criticisms such as these. It's yeah. very easy for people to have a pop. And I think this is the main overarching point about all of this. Is It's not so much about, I'm saying, Roger Federer has done something wrong. You know, that's very hard to prove. I'm not saying Craig Tiley is being paid by Roger Federer. That's why he's on Centre Court in Australia. But the fact you've got that relationship there is open to misinterpretation. Mm. And this is what's the new ground about it. And, you know, if you're looking at Marin Cilic, that final where the roof is coming on, the indoor, turning that into an indoor match and not telling Cilic 20 minutes before, you know, that probably is a little, like, oversight or kind of a mistake yeah, on the day. A but, the fact that re- but the fact that relationship's there, you know, you can have, you're just opening yourself up to all yeah, well, these sorts of problems, like yeah. all these questions that should be asked. And as journalists, we have to ask. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think that's the overarching point. And I, I would like to see tennis bring in some sort of regulation being like, right, if you're an active player, you can't be in a, well, you can't be paying tournament directors. I mean, that's one thing. Mm. Um, and then the other one that's, even more mind-boggling that's kind of not been played up so much is there was a, an interview with a former Paris Masters director, Cajol, I can't remember his first name, um, and he was saying Federer hadn't played, just for context, hadn't played between 2003 and 2007. Mm. And this guy, this tournament director, has gone to Federer and said, OK, what, what can we do to get you to play this tournament? Federer's gone to him, <laughs> you need to change the surface of the tournament completely. And the bloke's gone and done it. He's ripped up this carpet and laid down this fast <laughs> indoor hardcore for Federer to play there. Now, you know, is that crossing an ethical line? Is that a problem? Feels wrong, doesn't it? It, it sounds very wrong when you say it like that. And this tournament director, obviously this happened between back in 2007, but he's come out this week and be like, I'm the reason Roger Federer won here in 2011. I played a big part in that. Now, that just feels very, very wrong to me. That just feels very, very unfair. Not necessarily Federer's fault. Well, no, of course it's not Federer's fault. It's uh, The practical element of it is that tournament directors need these players to come and play yeah. at their tournaments because they are the big stars of the game. And actually, what's interesting, George, is this is a wider point about sport. It's becoming more personality-driven than it's ever been. There are more individually powerful sportsmen than there have ever been in the world. Mm-hmm. And more and more, they want, they're going, why are you making all the money out of me? Why yeah. aren't I making all the money? Conor McGregor... Paul Pogba. I, this is probably the biggest story is going to break over the next 12 months and football leaks are helping with it, is image rights. Uh, sometimes we hear about footballers struggling to get a contract done because of image rights disagreements. Essentially what that is, is footballers saying, we can't make money off me. I'll score goals for your team and you can make money off that, but you can't make money off me. And they're having to find contractual regulation to stop clubs making money off them. And this is the exact same thing. This is the likes of Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, John Isner. You know, <laughs> whoever it happens to be, this isn't isolated to the top two or the top no. three. It's all them saying, well, look, I'm the big deal here. This isn't, you know, people aren't coming to the Paris Masters to watch the Paris Masters because they think it's a great tournament. They're coming to watch Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Jack Sock. Um, they, you know, they're coming to watch the individuals and they know that now. It's going to be very interesting to see how tennis resolves this and it'll be equally interesting to see how the top people in tennis who, let's remember, 20 years ago when they were aspiring to those jobs, they wanted to be the most powerful people in tennis. Now they've got there, they've done all the hard yards and they're going, now players are telling me what to do. Mm. I was supposed to be telling players what to do. It's a power shift and it's a clash of egos as well. And when those two things are involved and then there's a huge amount of money at stake, 
things tend to get very, very messy. It's been a long season, George. Yes. I am tired. Mm. I am. I've played so much tennis, mm. and uh, once I just, was it? Uh, uh, twice. No, actually, you know what? This summer, <laughs> I actually played more tennis than I have in a while. That that whippy forehand is. It's just. It's a work of art. I'm as, sure. As a uh, my a guy who I play a lot of tennis said to me, he said, uh, he "said Do you ever have any um, tennis lessons going?" I was like, "Yeah, one or two. He's like. Not many though. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you look like someone who's watched a lot of tennis. I was like, thanks, thanks. I'll take that as a compliment. No, I've been, I've actually been playing all right this summer. Anyway, I've not been playing as much as some of these so-called professionals who people think are better than me. Mm. Uh, some people, but I've never played against any of them. So how do we it's know? Hard to prove. Exactly. Empirical evidence suggests that I am similar levels. But they play a lot, lot more than me, so they're a bit more practice. But they're also much, much more tired when we get to the end of middle of November, nearly the end of November. And they have been playing for nearly 11 months. And they are complaining about it. They are. Um, Alexander Zverev has been leading the charge this week. um, And he's made some very salient, articulate points on it. And I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing his thoughts on it. Um, So his his main one is basically... uh, Well, I think his main, his best point, actually, is to do with the off-season. So he's kind of saying, in every other sport, think about a pre-season in football... You might have a few weeks of strength training, a few weeks of actual footballing skills, tactics, blah, 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 to go on with it. Mm. Now he's saying, right, well, we've got two weeks to have a holiday, which they need because they've played for 11 months. Yeah, They've got two weeks to do all those other things compressed, and then they go again. Now, that that's a kind of fair point to be like, well, you know, that's not really good enough to then produce the best tennis we want to see throughout the year. I guess the reason it happens in some ways is from a practical standpoint. Tennis it, tennis has major tournaments every year, and four of them. So whereas other sports have you know cyclical things, four-year cycles or two-year cycles in athletics, tennis is every year. They don't have fallow years. They don't have years where you can have a month off and not, or six weeks off or eight weeks off. Actually, when you look at longevity of players' careers, the best ones have taken six months off. Mm. But quite by coincidence, Roger just said, well, I might as well take it off now. Same with Rafa, same with Novak, same with Andy Murray. But actually, what you need to do is build that in somewhere. Now, Zvera's got a very valid point, and I think he was saying that he needs a th- they'd like a three-week block of, basically, fitness training, yeah. and then three weeks of tennis. So what you're saying there is six weeks pre-season. Plus two weeks holiday. So two weeks, weeks minimum, to be yeah. fair. So you need to try and find a two and a half month gap. So shaving a month, essentially, from what we've got now, I mm. guess. Which means shaving tournaments. Yeah, which makes sense. Oh, yeah, you would say you would say that makes perfect sense. There's a lot of tennis goes on that we don't necessarily care about. Uh, I understand that not everyone agrees. No. So the other also very interesting point on this that I think is very legitimate uh, was put forward by Roger Federer. He kind of said, well. You know, it's all very well. Top ten, Alexander Zverev complaining about this, Mister Moneybags and whatever. Um, but the guys who are struggling to make a living, these extra tournaments are huge for them to keep playing. And we want tennis to be able to provide for as many people as possible, not just suit the likes of Zverev and Djokovic who are complaining about it. Mm. Um, and that's something that was echoed by Jamie Murray. He was saying, you know, for the doubles guys, we can't imagine having these tournaments kind of cut. You know, we'd, we're not paid anywhere near as much in yeah, prize graft. money. They really they graft. graft. If you're a, a player who's going out in the first round every week, okay, maybe you don't deserve to be paid <laughs> anything for that. But, you know, 
the point more is if you go through a bad spell of form, you need all these tournaments, all these chances to get back and back. There's no one else looking after you. There's not like a club that's going to save you from financial woes. You need to find a way to fund your coach, to fund your travel. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's a very fair point that it, it's very easy to look at tennis at the top, but we're constantly complaining that not enough people can make a living from this sport and it's not fair, it's not trickling down. So cutting the calendar seems to be problematic in that sense. Mm. It seems to me really that, that again, it comes down to money. We know, you know, cutting a tournament, you, not only are you cutting jobs for, yeah, these players further down who need these, you're just cutting jobs. Yeah. You're, you're cancelling events and broadcasters want more events. Djokovic's solution is essentially, well, you, you talk me through it because I don't understand it because I don't agree with it. Okay, so... I, I asked him this question, actually, based on both these things. And I, I, I gave him a nice six-paragraph question because I was after a very specific solution. I wanted him to kind of know what both the problems were. They were saying, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of said... Oh, you're that bloke in the press conference who just drones... I whistled on. Like, George, how are you still asking this question? Um, but to... I Inside that question, I said to him, I'd been thinking of a potential solution, which was you have a kind of... A, a qualifying start to the season so you almost extend it the other way and you have the first month of the year just a lot of 250 tournaments or whatever that the big players won't be inclined to play and you push back the Australian Open for example mm. three weeks or whatever I know logistically this is going to be a nightmare and we'll talk about that shortly but um, you know the idea that there's a slower start so the the lower ranked players can almost get themselves ready for the new year and play the events and earn money, whereas the big guys can take a bit more of a step back. Play I've always found it later. odd that we go so quickly into the Aussie yeah. Open. It's very early in yeah. the season. So I, I put that to Novak and he said, well, you know, it's very difficult to change everything with all the tournament directors and stuff. But what he thinks should happen is that the calendar ends, so it's pulled back a little, you pull the ATP finals back take out a few of the small tournaments throughout the year, and then you tag on... George is doing lots of complex hand gestures, hand gestures. Way, which don't work on podcasts. No, they don't. Just just for my own <laughs> clarity. <laughs> and then you tag on a new South America swing. So you're taking the game to South America, and you put a load of ATP 250 and 500 tournaments beyond the ATP finals mm. so that these players then have a spell to do that. So you keep the jobs for those guys, um, but the big players get their rest. Oh, good. Now, the problem with that, it's a nice idea, but it's short-sighted because, actually, the reason that these 250s and 500s make any money is because they get one or two top 10 players turning up to Mm. play them because that's what sells tickets. That's what people come to watch. If you say to all these little tournaments, oh, by the way, we're going to put you off the ATP World Tour Finals so that, you know, the good players can have a holiday, then they're going to go, well, who... We can't sell tickets off the back of Philip Krajinovic. <laughs> like, he's he's not going to pull people in. And they're right. Tennis, like it or not, has a limited popularity outside of its big personalities and its big players. Sure, the dedicated tennis fans will keep going. But actually, <laughs> you need more than that. You need random punters who go, oh, it's £15 tickets to go and watch David Goffin. Should we go? Yeah, why not? And actually, when you take that away, how are they going to make any money? Do you think... By putting it in a completely new continent that's not had tennis at all, that's still... No, I think it makes it even worse. You think it's worse? Yeah, because then you're going, oh, here's this sport that you don't really like (laughs) or haven't watched much of, and here's some blokes who are all right at it. Here's a £20 ticket. (laughs) No. 
<laughs> no, absolutely. Like you don't use your like second team to market, do you? You market things off the back of the biggest players, and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier that these guys' images are what sell the sport, and it's short-sighted thing. We can't. The problem is that the season is too long. Simply put, for everyone, it's too long. And yeah, while that might mean that we go from having a thousand professional tennis players in the world to eight hundred professional tennis players, so be it. Maybe this is the critical mass of the sport, and we need to accept that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see that. I can see everyone's kind of arguments. I, I don't necessarily hate Djokovic's idea. I, I think, it, to my mind, having that period at the start of the season is a better move in the sense that bigger players can choose to use it as warm-up events mm. and then it's less. And you can sort of sell off the back of that as well. Exactly. So you, you'd be able to drag in someone early in their kind of training to be like, this is a almost an exhibition warm-up. Like, yeah. Whereas you have a... If you at have the a, end, you they're have not going to turn ATP and do that. ATP 250 on clay in Bogota in November, a month after the ATP World Tour Finals, no one's going to go. And it's very after Lord Mayor's show. Yeah. And the other thing I'd like to say on the calendar I think we're entering a bit of an interesting point Commode and Tylee were going on about this a little bit in the kind of launch of this ATP Cup um, this week and they were basically saying um, tennis has got this very old fashioned view about events being somewhere and this happening blah 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 and you know we're all stuck in this kind of rigid calendar when not good at thinking outside the box yeah and this is about promoting tennis now I would like to challenge them both to say, good, I agree with you. Here's what you need to do. You need to rip up this entire calendar. Mm. We're in a big environmental crisis around this world. Let's put everything sensibly in order via continent and stop these players flying to bloody America, then coming into Europe and then going back to America and then Mm. buggering off to Shanghai or whatever. And then coming back to Europe. I mean, that just is, it, it makes no sense. Let's streamline this whole year. Let's get it. You start in Australia or whatever. You spend a month out there. Then you come to Europe and do the clay and grass court swings. Then you have the American hard court swings. Stick at Indian Wells and Miami in there. That makes a lot more sense. Then you go off to Asia and you finish the year in Asia. Or you go off to South America after that. Don't then come back to Europe after that. I mean, and From that's a just marketing perspective, that actually makes a lot of sense as well. Because it's easy to... I mean, if you take a small country like England, for example. If you live near Eastbourne and you don't go to Eastbourne and Eastbourne turns out to be great maybe you think oh I should have gone to that like, oh by the way there's a tournament in Brighton in two weeks great let's go to that I think you build momentum like that from a marketing perspective and these smaller tournaments once again benefit from it well there you have it that is the uh, end of the ATP World Tour Finals look back fix tennis with James and George <laughs> Uh, if any tournament, if, exactly. <laughs> if any tournament directors need to know how to fix the game of tennis, we are readily available at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter. Wait, are you are you following us on? No, you're not following us on Twitter. At Love Tennis Pod, what are you doing? Why aren't you following us on Twitter? Do also jump onto iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. We Subscribe. only accept nice reviews, I'm afraid. <laughs> if you've got a bad review, you can send that to my personal address at. No, I'm not giving you my personal address. I'm not an idiot. Just send me some abuse on Twitter or something. Just don't put it on iTunes. Subscribe as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll be back after the Davis Cup final when France take on Croatia. Quick prediction for that, George. Ooh. I think it's going to be Croatia's turn. I think they're going to really enjoy, because it's in Lille, isn't it? And I think they'll really enjoy how rowdy that atmosphere is. Be a cracker. We'll be back the day after to look back at it and also fix tennis uh, more. If you haven't fixed it by then, you've got a week, tennis. We'll see you next week. 
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.